Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Keith Harper. Dr. Harper is a senior professor of Baptist studies here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also currently serves as series editor for America's Baptist for the University of Tennessee Press. Dr. Harper has written extensively on U.S. religious history, especially religious history in the South, U.S. social history and Baptist history in particular. He is co-author of the SBC FAQs, A Ready Reference, and co-editor of Between Fetters and Freedom, African-American Baptists Since Emancipation. Dr. Harper is also the editor of Through a Glass Darkly, Contested Notions of Baptist Identity. This is in the Religion and American Culture series. Today, Dr. Harper has joined us to discuss his faith journey and the topic of the Southern Baptist Convention and the impact of cultural differences. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Harper. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. Speaking of cultural differences, uh, let me read a quote from the introduction that Dr. Crowther and you provided in your book, Between Fetters and Freedom. You say, a persistent gap between black and white Americans remain. This ongoing division in American society reflects the challenging role of race in history, which is reflected in the Baptist world since emancipation the need of cultural identity, African-American self-determination, and sadly, white supremacy, have historically kept black and white Baptists separated, even as a common commitment to evangelistic goals have posited opportunities for cooperation and shared visions. For African-American Baptists, the historical record is much clearer. The Baptist faith has provided a source of religious and cultural identity for scores of African Americans. At times, the possibility of brotherhood has seemed to point in the direction of full equality, both civil and ecclesiastical, as they contemplate a world not appropriated according to the color of one's skin. Black Baptists often find themselves more than a century and a half after emancipation between fetters and freedom. Between fetters and freedom, that's, a, that's an interesting turn of phrase that, that is the title of your book and perhaps does sum up the situation we find uh, in these days. Talk to us a bit about the context for this book. What brought about uh, you and Dr. Crowther writing Between uh, Fetters and Freedom? Well... It's a bit of a story, but uh, I'll try to give you the highlights of it. I've known Ed probably for a little better than 30 years. And uh, when I first met him, he was really digging into the archival material that we have in Nashville on an African-American preacher named Charles Octavius Booth. Uh, I'd never heard of Booth before then, and he told me a little bit about Booth. He went on and wrote an article on Booth, and uh, we went our ways. 
uh, we reconnected uh, back about well, the early 2000s after that. It would have been about 1990 when I first met him. And then uh, we reconnected about uh, 2000, and we began corresponding back and forth about Baptist history. Ed is uh, an American historian. He retired last year from Adams State University in Alamosa, Colorado. And the more we talked, the more we realized that there is a wealth of information that is out there and untapped on African-American Baptists. They are a very understudied group in terms of all the Baptist groups. And at last count, last uh, semi-official account, there were over 65 different Baptist groups, you know, identifiable groups in North America. And um, that, according to Mead's handbook uh, of denominations. But African-American Baptists are, are so uh, ignored or just underappreciated. So Ed and I began a number of smaller projects along the way. And uh, because we felt like African-American Baptists had been overlooked, we wanted to contact some of our friends that we knew were working in the field and uh, pull some essays together and hopefully uh, get some more conversation going on what is going on in the African-American Baptist community and maybe lead to some more scholarship along the way. Well, there seems to be a renewed appreciation for, for example, you mentioned Booth. There seems to be a number of books and articles about him. And there seems to be a greater appreciation for the culture or, or the, uh, the, the historical uh, influence of uh, black Baptists in America. The relationship of black and white Baptists in America, and particularly in the South, you and I are both Southern Baptists. Um, Southern Baptists have a, a record that is mixed. I think we can say that. I think it's important that we acknowledge that it's mixed, not entirely negative. Uh, one of the things that you uh, have, one of the areas that you've written about is, uh, in fact, it's on your dissertation, is about the social activism of Southern Baptists uh, throughout our history. Um, turns out we, we had uh, much more of a social heritage than perhaps we've been given credit. Can you talk about that? Uh, yes, uh, I certainly can. I, um, I came about that topic uh, not necessarily by accident, but in conversation with uh, my Ph.D. director back at the University of Kentucky, a fine man by the name of Ron Eller. And Elder told me one day that he had been in conversation with uh, Larry Lewis, uh, a name you may remember yes. from back in the day. And Larry Lewis had reached out to Ron because Ron was an Appalachian scholar. And he said, we need somebody to help us write a handbook for missionaries who are going into the Appalachian region because they'll meet up with culture shock and they will not know how to handle it. So we chatted about Let me pause that. right there. I think that's, that people who are not familiar with uh, the southern part of the United States are shocked to find that there are different regions within the south. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and, and, and the Appalachians are not the same as, let's say, Mississippi or any other part of the south, that there are some very distinct regions. And the idea yep. that a southerner would need some cultural 
in, uh, cultural help to know how to navigate working in the mountains is something I think most people would be very surprised to find out about. I'll take it one step further than that. The Appalachians are not the same as the Ozarks. <laughs> well, as someone who grew up in the Ozarks, I, I, I know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, there's an upper south, there's a lower south, there's a cotton belt south, there are multiple souths. And Ron told me after, you know, uh, explaining what uh, Larry wanted, he told, looked at me and he goes, now to me, that's an example of the social gospel in the south. And I pulled the standard line on him, the social gospel's a northern phenomenon, isn't it? And he said, no, I don't think so. And we just left it at that. Well, I got chewing on that, you know, and I thought, all right, well. So I started reading about the social gospel, and Southerners had really been written out of the story. But if you're looking for mountain missions and a way to engage culture along the way, how does that work? Uh, we're talking about the late 80s here when Ron and I had this conversation. So I began to backtrack over time. And I thought, well, if we're having this conversation in the 80s, did we have it in the 1880s mm -hmm. and the 1890s? And sure enough, I started looking at Baptist orphanages and the fact that by the time you got to 1920, every place that had a, every state that had a Southern Baptist work, you know, had an orphanage in some places too. Kentucky had two Baptist orphanages. North Carolina had two Baptist orphanages. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, I had to look in at hospitals. And by the time you got to the 20th century, Southern Baptists were getting involved increasingly in healthcare issues and so forth. And the thing that, um, and going back to the mountains, let me go ahead and close that loop. The, in, in addition to planting churches, they were creating schools. Uh, primary and secondary education being foremost there. And um, uh, so it was very much part of the, the home mission mandate, or at least the perceived mandate at that time. So I'm thinking that between schools and between orphanages and perhaps between hospitals and any other number of issues along the way, Southern Baptists are very involved in what's going on in, in societal doings. They were engaging their culture uh, at the local level, thanks to associational and statewide Baptist work, um, and under the aegis of missions, of course. And so I thought, now there's a dissertation here. So I mentioned a story earlier, I'll share it with you. I was talking to... Yeah, so <clears throat> this, this kind of regional, would you describe this as a regional blind spot in academia? <laughs> uh, I would call it uh, academic hostility in some quarters. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty bold, really. But much of it is perspective. Okay. Um, I was talking to the editor of the Journal of Southern History one time, and he just I told him what I was working on, where I was coming from, and he said, "Well, I just don't believe there's a social gospel in the South." I said, "Really." Well, let me ask you a question. I've got two soup kitchens. One's in Atlanta, Georgia. One is in New York City. Why is the one in New York City social gospel and the one in Atlanta, Georgia mere charity? He had no answer. Hmm. It, talk about blind spot. He just looked at me and he said, well, write an article. Maybe I'll publish it. And I thought, I, 
<laughs> I have other things to do. Thank you. But the point is that there was a blind spot there. There was a bias there. And some of it just came down to being anti-Southern. Now, there is a book that came out uh, just this year, actually, by Carol Holcomb, and it's called Home Without Walls. And Carol takes what I did in Quality of Mercy, uh, and she goes a lot further with it, and she shows a much deeper and more far-ranging approach on behalf of Southern Baptists towards social issues and the like, and that is one fine book. If you are interested in the topic at all, you need to read Carol Holcomb, Home Without Walls. And it's just strictly what Southern Baptists are doing in terms of social engagement at the turn of the century. It's a fine book. So when we talk about social engagement, uh, you note things such as orphan care, um, uh, hospitals and health care, schools and education. Uh, I have to say, as someone who lived in New Orleans in the in 2005 when Katrina came through, I was on the campus of New Orleans Seminary, um, and my house was flooded for six weeks. Uh, it, and, and, and New Orleans is a overwhelmingly, predominantly Roman Catholic town. Mm-hmm. Uh, 93% of the people in New Orleans are non-Baptist. It, it got the attention of the whole city, uh, and in fact made a front page cover story of the uh, city paper, how Baptist arrived with food and supplies and chainsaws and trailers. And um, we, we were, uh, when my wife and I were trying to rescue what we could from our home, there were like 30 or 40 people from uh, the Johnson City area of Tennessee there helping us. We were all wearing hazmat suits. And the Baptists didn't show up just for one day or one week or one month or one year. They came back year after year. And there weren't just hundreds or thousands. There were tens of thousands and maybe even a 100,000. So that kind of social engagement often flies under the radar. But when it comes to disaster relief, Southern Baptists are on the front lines. Yes, sir, they are. As a matter of fact... uh I think that disaster relief, well, I'll just go ahead and say it, nobody does disaster relief better than Southern Baptists. Yeah, if you Google disaster relief, it'll first be uh, the Red Cross, yep. and then and then the Southern Baptist, uh, the North American Mission Board will be listed second. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we should be first. All right. We, we, we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just my, that's my bias, and I admit it, but I knew a number of men who went to New Orleans in the wake of Katrina. The fact is, I was doing an interim pastorate down in uh, 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 Thomasville at the time that Katrina was brewing out in the Gulf, and uh, the fellow I was having lunch with that day had two phones with him. I said, uh, you know, most people struggle with one of those, and you carry two. And he goes, well, he said, one's my phone, and the other belongs to the convention. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, that storm. He said, I'm probably going to be heading for New Orleans. And he was. He got a call at lunch, and he said, I got to go. And he left right then, and Katrina was, you know, still still brewing. He wound up spending two months down there. His own time, his own dime. He's down there uh, helping people. His wife wound up going down. She was there for over 30 days helping out, and 
it's a fabulous story. You're talking about chainsaws a minute ago. Some of these crews wound up, uh, they were stopped by the National Guard. They wouldn't let them go in on I-10 or you know I-55 or something like that. Well, these old boys got off on these country roads and they found back roads in and they cleared trees and debris and they were in the city, boots on the ground uh, and helping people uh, technically uh, before they, they were allowed official access in. And you're right, they stayed there for um, months and months that stretched into, I think, as much as two, two and a half years. Yes, uh, it's remarkable. So we're going to praise Southern Baptists for the ways in which they did do social engagement um, well. And like I said, as somebody who has uh, received uh, uh, the grace of God in very concrete ways through uh, Southern Baptists, during Katrina, I, I can tell you that, that they do, they, we've done a lot of things wrong, but we did that one right. Yes. The reason why we are not given the credit perhaps we should be is because uh, we seem to have a blind spot, an egregious blind spot when it comes to the matter of race. For all the good that we've done, there's one area that we seem to have, could have done more and have not. Uh, talk to us about how Southern Baptist, uh, you know, you, you talk about our, our black Baptist brethren, mm -hmm. National Baptist Convention, um, Southern Baptist, during the 1950s and 1960s, what did we miss? How, how is it we got it so wrong during that period of time? Wow. Now that is a very, very good question, but it's a very difficult question to answer. And um, in fact, uh, Crowther, uh, Ed Crowther and I are working on a book at this particular time on Baptists and race relations that will go probably all the way back to emancipation and try to chart the, the difficulties along the way. Part of the problem stems from the great difficulty in integrating uh, the difference between what you believe and how you behave. Uh, Baptists are very good at preaching a, an ethic that says you need to do right and you need to be faithful about doing right and that's what we believe but now how we behave well that cashes out differently for other folks how do you bring your theological and your biblical beliefs into actual uh, working relationships with other people and when the culture changes and when the politics change, it becomes very difficult to really incorporate those in a way because I think human beings tend to default to something, sadly, and I hate to say this, but something that they're comfortable with. And it always kind of goes back on that. The, the approach that Ed and I are taking in, in the project that we're working on, uh, our working title is Our Brother's Keepers. Hmm. And it, it kind of goes into... Um, it, it dovetails with the industrialization of the American political system and the American economic system as well. So there were professionals, and we can demonstrate this going all the way back into the 1880s and 1890s. Okay, there were there were intellectuals, there were um, organizationally oriented people who kind of met. Our, our working metaphor is it's like neighbors meeting at the fence, okay? 
the African-American face to the white community, the white community's face to the African-American community, and then these keepers, if you will, went back and did their things with, within, their own, uh, within their own ranks and for their own brethren. Well, there are positive moves in those kinds of interactions, but that's not exactly where you know, the interactions happen uh, in, in, other, in other areas. So by the time you get to, let's say, the 50s and the 60s, uh, the Brown decision is a pivotal moment in race relations, especially among Baptists in the United States. Everybody knows Brown v. Board, 1954, desegregation of public schools, absolutely huge moment, but it's a big moment for Baptists too. Because among African-American Baptists, it's like, okay, are you going to sit by and wait passively for things to happen, or do you become more engaged in the political process? It leads to a split within the National Baptist Convention, and in 1961, you have the formation of the Progressive National Baptist Convention, and these, these Baptists are looking for a more politically engaged, a more politically activistic kind of faith. And it will be later for whites, you know, whenever they really reach a, a tipping point. But there is a profound effect, and you see this kind of in back channels. Um, on one of our research trips to Nashville, Ed was reading letters that the Christian Life Commission, uh, Christian Life Commission is a forerunner of Ehrlich, uh, right. Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, but they were receiving letters angry letters from rank-and-file Baptist preachers. And these letters would say things like, well, government got our schools. They ain't getting our churches. Right. And so, you know, what happens when African-Americans begin showing up at white churches? You know, you have people standing there uh, forbidding them entrance and, and one thing or another, and you have a, a major problem on your hands. Um, I just finished an article um, that I sent into a journal, and hopefully they'll publish it, and I call it a reckoning on Ninth Avenue. That's where the Sunday School Board was, Ninth Avenue. And in 1971, late 1971, they pulled some training union literature because of sensitivity to race. Now, just for a second here, <clears throat> just for the sake of our listener, which you and I, uh, Dr. Harper, are older probably than the average listener. Way older. So, yeah, and so we actually know what training union uh, was. <laughs> uh, so, you know, just so our listener would know, a, a generation ago, um, our churches were almost monolithic. You can, I could tell you what was going to happen. Sunday school was going to happen at 10. Church was going to happen at 11. Uh, we're going to use the Sunday school uh, literature uh, in Sunday school. On Sunday night... Uh, at 6 p.m. there would be training union and then at 7 would be the Sunday night church service and of course Wednesday night we can talk about the potlucks and the business meetings. So you could go for, <laughs> to a Southern Baptist church from the east coast to the west coast and they all were the same. I grew up attending, well, whenever for whatever reason, maybe it was a punishment, I attended training union. But let's, let's face it, um, it, was no, it was the least popular of all Southern Baptist programs, I think we. I, I, I hate to say that. I, I hope I don't offend somebody listening who wrote scores of, of, of articles and lessons for the training union uh, that we used to have. So, in the 1970s, some material is written and yes. it gets pulled because. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, boy, that was a beautiful thumbnail sketch of training union. Um, it's like Sunday school at night, only training union was was supposedly dedicated to engaging cultural issues, but it's the poorest attended uh, thing that Southern Baptists have, which underscores the, the really the sadness of this story. Uh, there were two lessons written by a woman from Arizona. Uh, her name was Twyla Wright, and she was talking about, and this literature, by the way, I should say, was aiming at 14 to 15-year-olds, age-graded Sunday school, age-graded training union, okay? So, uh, and there was a picture, and when you open the quarterly, uh, there was a picture that took up half of both pages, right? Same picture. Mm -hmm. It was an African-American male talking to two white females. And uh, the, the official word was the photo was grainy and, uh, you know, all kinds of things. So they pull that and they, re, they, they redo that. They redo the photos in lesson one. But in lesson two, Miss Wright said, um, if you've never visited an African-American church, if you have African-American friends who go to African-American churches, go to church with them. Bring them to your church. And uh, that part of it got rewritten. They brought in a separate author for the second lesson. And rather than talking about racial reconciliation, it starts out with this kind of rousing call to patriotism and everything, which is probably an article right there within itself. But the one thing that never came out uh, as a result of that story, or at least from Nashville, it never came out, they redid all the photos there and there were several uh, mixed race photographs and they got expunged and they got replaced well word leaked and the story of the leakage Newsweek ran an article on it uh, the New York Times ran an article every media outlet in America picked up on this and to so them it reinforced the stereotype it sure did it should have been an in-house editorial matter, but no, and, and the longer it went, the worse it was. I have a milk crate full of these letters at home. Jimmy Carter wrote to the Sunday School Board, uh, Governor Carter at the time, soon to be President of the United States. A couple of different congressional aides wrote going, what in the world is going on down there? And uh, uh, it was it was quite the thing. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that they had prepared a form letter along the way. Jimmy Carter got a form letter. Uh, the congressional aides who wrote got a form letter. So you're telling me that, of course, Governor Carter, he was the governor of Georgia yes. at that time, gets a form letter from, yes. from the Sunday School Board. James Earl Carter, yes, that's yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh out loud. However, let me underscore this very quickly. Um, W.A. Criswell got a personal letter. Herschel Hobbs got several personal letters. And the dynamic that's going on there, the reason I called this a reckoning on Ninth Avenue came down to James Sullivan, who was the head of the Sunday School Board, could not believe that some of the papers were running negative publicity aimed at the Sunday School Board. Uh, Sunday School Board had always tried to walk a middle of the road line. And one letter from Jacksonville pretty well summed it up. This guy asked James Sullivan, he goes, when are we going to quit listening to the reddest of the rednecks when it comes to matters bearing on 
uh, race relations and what it means to be a Baptist or something like that. Um, and so that I had to put that one in there, the reddest of the rednecks. But Criswell had said, you know, hey, you're steering a middle course. That's exactly what you need to do. And, uh, and that's what he did. Well, this is 71, and by 1974, uh, Sullivan retires from, you know, the Sunday School Board, and if you'll recall, he served one term as president of the SBC. And in the meantime, he has, he's been a, an authority on Baptist polity. And if you read uh, Rope of Sand with Strength of Steel and, yes, God, and God is My Record, if you know what you're looking for, I mean, he, he references the Becoming episode. That's what this material was called for training in. It was Becoming. He references the Becoming episode, and he says, I was just a bunch of activists that really wanted to, uh, it really wanted to stir up trouble. But the Sunday School Board steered that middle course, and uh, our, our prophets, uh, how, did, how did he put it? Our prophets... Uh, justified the course of action. The Sunday School Board's ministry continued to expand. When I'm talking about profits, I'm talking about money. It's like, yeah, it all came to naught. We're still making money. Profits so, with an F, not a PH. That's exactly right. And yeah. I thought, oh my goodness. And um, he didn't get it. Uh, you know, there were, there were issues, there were real issues that polity and corporate doublespeak were just not going to address. And... Uh, Ultimately, uh, they're fighting a different battle. But, and it would take a long time to unpack this. In fact, that's kind of where Crowther and I are right now. We're trying to unpack the controversy of the SBC as it bears on race relations because race relations plays a role in that conflict. I'm absolutely convinced of it. This has been a fascinating conversation where we've got to hear about the good things that we've done in terms of social engagement and the area in which we still have a lot of work to do. And uh, this, this gonna, is going to give us an opportunity for future podcasts. Tell us again the, the working title of, what, of the book that you're working on right now. Our Brother's Keepers. Our Brother's Keeper. Uh, we, have been, uh, we have been talking with Dr. Keith Harper a senior professor of Baptist studies here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And my name's Ken Keithley. This is the Christ and Culture Podcast, wishing you a good day.